A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as adult language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. In the audio you're hearing right now, I'm walking up to the front gate of a home in the Las Vegas Country Club, a gated community a little ways east of the Las Vegas Strip. I'm here to meet the home's current owner, an attorney named Jim Morgan, who has agreed to show me around the place. The home has been described to the Review Journal as a, quote, very one-of-a-kind property and something you don't see in Las Vegas. Built like a fortress, a little Fort Knox. As Jim shows me the home's front gate, I can start to see why. Supposedly, these doors are bulletproof. Um, You can see how heavy they are. Just inside the bulletproof gate, before you get to the front door of the home, which is also bulletproof, there's a small electrical room housing a maze of wires and electrical boxes. This is... Every time I have any electrical stuff done at the house, they're they're, they're all fascinated by the electrical in this house. I'm not an electrician by any stretch of the imagination, but even I can tell this isn't typical for a home of this size. This unit is has enough power to run a small commercial building, but he needed that because he had all of the cameras and TVs up in one of the rooms I'll show you. Jim tells me that one of the upstairs bedrooms used to be filled with video monitors hooked up to a home security system and surveillance systems at a handful of casinos. And I'll show you there's tons of wiring all over this house. (laughs) So he had eyes on the Stardust from from home? Stardust and and the other casinos, yeah. But the Stardust was the biggest one. And he was powering it all out of here? Yep. Yeah, that's why there's, there's, I'll show you all the wires. The wiring is crazy. There's, people hate, the cable guys and the electricians and stuff hate coming here because there's so many wires, it's hard to track anything. I bet. When we step into the home, past another set of bulletproof doors, it feels like we've stepped back in time. I know that phrase is overused, but it really does feel like we've been transported to the 1970s. Everything from the furniture, to the art, to the wallpaper. You can tell this is 70s wallpaper with the fabric yeah. on it, and you'll see several places where they, the wallpaper is original. There's one other thing that grabs your attention immediately when you walk into this home. A glass floating staircase just past the entryway. On the other side of it are floor-to-ceiling windows with a view out to the country club's golf course. Jim tells me that just like the front doors and every other original window on this side of the home, all the glass I'm looking at is bulletproof. And then he points to some evidence that this may have been a wise precaution. A chip in the glass on the outside of the window. This is supposedly I say bullet hole, but it's not a hole because it didn't penetrate the glass. This glass supposedly is bulletproof. And that's uh, where somebody tried to shoot him from the golf course, if you, you can see it. And so that's supposedly he was coming down the stairs one day and someone opened fire? Just a single shot, you know, I mean, just a, there's just one bullet hole.
Once you got Once power, you got a lot of power, power, you don't care about the money no more. For the Las Vegas Review Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it, because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's the only question, not if, but when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, you'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 5. The Argent Empire. When Tony Spilatro was sent out to Las Vegas by the Chicago Outfit, it was the early 1970s. During this era, the Outfit was aggressively looking to expand its grip on casinos in the city. And in 1974, working with other Midwestern mob families, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Kansas City, they had an opportunity to take control of a handful of casinos, including the largest resort in the world at the time, the Stardust Hotel, which boasted around 1,400 rooms. The Teamsters Central States Pension Fund was going to put up the money, but that was only half the battle. By this point, if you were going to purchase a casino, regulations required you to have a clean background So the mom needed a frontman, someone they could put down on paper as the owner. That's where a squeaky clean California businessman named Alan Glick comes into the picture. Here's Jeff Silver, a former gaming regulator who serves as board chair at the Mom Museum. Alan Glick had shortly earlier had gotten out of the uh, army in the quartermaster corps. I think he was a a lower level officer there. And... uh, He was approached regarding uh, an opportunity to purchase this hotel that was owned by Recreon Corporation, uh, a guy named Del Coleman. And uh, Recreon had its own uh, reputational issues at the time and was uh, in a situation where it was possibly going to lose its license. And so they were looking for the next person to come in there and still keep control of this place, but at the same time look like they had, uh, had cleaned house. And so Alan Glick had an impeccably clean background at that time. Whether he knew or not, uh, he will tell you that uh, he did not know that he was being used as a front man. In 1974, Alan Glick purchased the Stardust Hotel using Teamster loans. Well, sort of. It was technically purchased by a holding company called the Argent Corporation. The Argent Corporation was a sort of fictitious operation, if you will. Historian Michael Green. One version of it is that Argent is A-R-G, Alan Arglick, Enterprises. 
Another is that argent is, after all, the French word for money. Either would be appropriate. Although it was the most lucrative, the Stardust wouldn't be the only hotel casino purchased by Glick and the Argent Corporation. Then when opportunities became available to purchase the, the Fremont and the uh, Hacienda and the Marina, that money was made available to Alan Glick to do that. Glick got a loan from the Teamsters Union of somewhere in the neighborhood of $62.7 million to buy what ultimately became the Argent Empire, the Stardust and Hacienda on the Strip, the Fremont downtown, and I think they also ended up with the Marina, which is no longer with us but is sort of part of the MGM Grand Complex. The Stardust is now going to be the Genting Group operation in the resort world, and the Haciendas where Mandalay Bay is now located. And it was thought, you know, that was a good, a good purchase for him. They were able to consolidate a lot of the hotel's functions, such as the uh, coin counting department that uh, ended up being a part of a big skimming operation. Just like that, the Argent Corporation had become the biggest casino landlord in the city of Las Vegas, and Midwestern crime families were the beneficiaries. Here's Bill Ousley, former supervisor of the FBI's organized crime squad in Kansas City. These were the partners, Cleveland, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Kansas City. So the skim money, as it came out of the Stardust and the Fremont, was curried back to Chicago, because they were the main enchilada. Then Chicago would split it up. To look after its interests at the Argent Casinos, the Chicago outfit had a guy on the inside, an eccentric employee at the Stardust named Frank Rosenthal, who would eventually serve as the inspiration for Robert De Niro's character, Ace Rothstein, in the Martin Scorsese movie Casino, based on the book by Nick Pileggi. Here's Stan Hunterton, former special attorney with the Organized Crime Strike Force in Las Vegas. As you know, in traditional mafia circles, you have to be of Sicilian or Italian extraction, physically. DNA. They they want to be able to trace back who was your father, who was your grandfather, who was your great-great-grandfather. Did you come from Palermo or did you come from Sicily? That kind of thing. That's the traditional admission ticket, if you will, or starting point for admission to the mafia. Rosenthal, of course, did not have that background. Frank Rosenthal came from a Jewish family in Chicago, meaning he could never become a main member of the outfit. Unlike, for example, Tony Spilatro. But they'll work with anybody who can make money for them. (laughs) And uh, Rosenthal was an expert sports handicapper and an expert better and later crossed the line into fixing uh, sporting events. But he knew his way around casinos and sports gambling and odds and things like that. Frank Rosenthal came to Las Vegas, and he wanted to get into the industry, and eventually was put in charge of the Stardust. The mob interest did this, mostly out of Chicago. That's where he came from. Because there are a couple Franks in this series, from here on out, I'll try to stick to referring to Frank Rosenthal by his nickname, Lefty. And Lefty was their guy. 
uh, Lefty was a genius when it came to gambling and odds and, and what have you. And uh, they had put him in to run the casino. He puts his crew in there in order to skim the funds that are distributed to the, to the mob. If Alan Glick didn't know what he was getting into from the start, he was about to find out. Here's Gary Jenkins, former intelligence unit detective with the Kansas City Police Department and host of the podcast, Gangland Wire. He had this man named Frank Lefty Rosenthal working for him, and Lefty was wanting to take more power and more power and and move people around the casino and really kind of edge this Alan Glick out as being just, you know, a, a figurehead that sits up in a big office while Lefty runs the casino. Well, he was resisting this and wasn't letting Lefty have free reign. And one night Lefty went to him, he said, you know, he said, you got all those loans from the Teamsters Union. He said, uh, there's a man in Kansas City that wants to talk to you. And he convinced him that they need to get on their private jet and fly back to Kansas City. Alan Glick is met at the airport by a member of the Kansas City crime family who takes him to an airport hotel where the boss of the family, a guy named Nick Savella, is sitting in the dark, waiting for him. The room's dark. Nick Savella's already in there. There's one lamp. They sit him down in the middle of the room and put the lamp in his face, and Nick Savella stands out of the, the cone of light and starts talking to him about, you know, first thing he said, he said, you know, if I had my way, you wouldn't leave this room alive. And then he proceeds to tell him how he owes him at least a million or a million point five dollars for his help in, in getting that loan. And Glick's going, you know, God, how am I supposed to repay that? And, and Nick tells him, he said, you know, you don't worry about how you repay it. He said, you've got a man working for you out there and you just need to let him do what he needs to do and, and we'll get that repaid. So that same night, Alan Glick turns around and flies back to Las Vegas with all the motivation in the world to let this employee of his, Lefty Rosenthal, have free reign over the stardust. Alan Glick would later testify that in October of 1974, he had the following interaction with Lefty in a coffee shop at the Stardust. Quote, He got up and he somewhat walked away from the table. His blood pressure was rising. Then he came back. I think it's about time that we had a discussion, Rosenthal said, referring to me by my last name only. Glick, it's about time you become informed of what is going on here, and where I'm coming from and where you should be. I was placed in this position not for your benefit, but for the benefit of others, and I have been instructed not to tolerate any nonsense from you. Nor do I have to listen to what you say because you are not my boss. If you interfere with any of the casino operators or try to undermine anything I want to do here, I represent to you that you will never leave this corporation alive. Glick says he told Lefty to leave, but that Lefty replied, When I said that you will not leave this corporation alive, people that I represent have the power to do that, and much more. You should take me seriously. You are an intelligent individual, but don't test me. Alan Glick, apparently having received the message loud and clear, would publicly state the following about Lefty. Quote, I feel extremely fortunate to have a man with Lefty Rosenthal's qualifications working directly with me on establishing and carrying out general policies for all our resorts. He has been a great credit to Nevada's gaming industry.
Lefty Rosenthal was supposed to stay under the radar at the Argent Casinos because by the 1970s, you needed a license to serve in any high-level role at a Vegas casino. Again, here's former gaming regulator Jeff Silver. Well, there's a uh, regulation that requires key employees, and key employees are, uh, there's an, there's been an expanding definition of key employees, but at the time, it was anybody who made $50,000 a year or more, because that was a tremendous sum of money at, the, at that uh, particular moment. I was earning like $24,000 a year as a member of the Gaming Control Board, so it was double my salary at that time. But these are people who had the ability to exercise significant influence over the operations of a casino, who could extend credit, who could um, provide for complimentary services, and who actually controlled any of the accounting or, or supervisional functions of a casino. This is former Nevada governor Bob List talking about Lefty in an interview with the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. He was firing people. Okay. He was hiring people. He was doing uh, the things that affect major policies in the property. And yet he was not licensed. Okay. So the decision was made to call him forward for licensing. And so the Gaming Control Board held a hearing. One of the members of the Gaming Control Board at this time was Jeff Silver, whose voice you're hopefully starting to get familiar with. During the first hearing, Lefty got denied, and uh, it was the recommendation of the control board that was unanimous that went up to the commission, and it was unanimous upholding of that recommendation in denying him. The reasons for denying Lefty a key employee license included a previous conviction in North Carolina for conspiracy to bribe an amateur athlete, and Senate testimony about Lefty attempting to bribe an NCAA football player into throwing a game. And they called him forward, made him apply for a license, held a hearing, found him unsuitable, and then he sued. And that put it in my hands as, as attorney general to handle the lawsuit. Before he became Nevada's governor, Bob List was the state's attorney general. And he was serving in that role when Lefty took his case to the Nevada State Supreme Court. And my position was a gaming license is a privilege. It's not a right. So you're not entitled to a gaming license. That suitability is a factor that can be considered in the public interest. And that had never been tested before. And uh, I won the case. The state Supreme Court affirmed the decision to deny Lefty a key employee license, so Lefty tried to bring his case to the U.S. Supreme Court. I still remember the opening line of our brief in the United States Supreme Court. It went like this. This case involves an attempt by a convicted felon to get a privileged gaming license in the state of Nevada. <laughs> we wanted to get their attention right yes. up front. In the end, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take the case up, letting the Nevada State Supreme Court's decision stand. Lefty wasn't going to get his license. It looked as though he was out of options, but he quickly discovered a loophole. Certain non-gaming titles in casinos apparently didn't require a key employee license. So, at least on paper, he became a food and beverage director, and later the entertainment director at the Stardust. Even though he assumed these other titles, to avoid having to get a gaming license, he did take certain aspects of these new jobs seriously. For example, Lefty is said to have monitored the number and distribution of blueberries, 
in each blueberry muffin at the Stardust, inspiring a famous scene in the movie Casino. Here's Jane Ann Morrison, a retired reporter and columnist who spent nearly 40 years with the Review Journal. The blueberry story, he apparently got a, uh, a muffin with not as many blueberries as the guy with, with him, and he had a fit that he wants X amount of blueberries in every muffin. You know? And it's a pretty funny scene, and from what I hear, it's true. That part is, that part is supposed to be true. Again, former Gaming Control Board member Jeff Silver. Originally, after he was turned down for his role as the casino director, casino manager, uh, then he uh, scurried over to these other titles in the hopes that he might be able to continue exerting his influence over the operation. Uh, so we, we at times had to change the, the, the regulations to clarify certain things that were going on. For example, in the case of entertainment director, there was a, an exception that was put into the law at one legislative session for Frank Sinatra. Well, Frank Sinatra had uh, catered to Sam Giancana when he was uh, owning the uh, Club Calneva in northern Nevada, northern uh, Lake Tahoe. And so they were concerned that having Frank Sinatra be involved in entertainment on the premises could be a problem. So they carved out an exception for people who were involved in the entertainment business providing services to a hotel. And, of course, Lefty looking at that, thinking that maybe he could create an exception for himself, uh, created the Frank Rosenthal show. Now, the show was terrible. It was just awful. I mean, he, he was not a good interviewer, but he had famous people on, and they would chit-chat, and then he'd have a showgirl or two on. And people would, uh, you know, in terms of what the show was like, it was laughable. But people watched it because he got good, he got good uh, people on there. Aside from hosting the Frank Rosenthal show and counting blueberries, Lefty also paid close attention to the Stardust Hotel's showgirl show, the Lido de Paris. So the first Lido show I did ran 22 months. Then the second Lido show I did ran maybe two years, 24 months. And they progressively got longer and longer. The next show I did went three years. So in all, I was in the Lido show 15 years. And this was all at the Stardust? Yes. This is Charles Neur Fernald, who was a dancer in Las Vegas during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The clips you're hearing are from a 2014 interview he did with the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. The way Charles tells it, bumping shoulders with mobsters from time to time was just part of working in entertainment in Las Vegas during this era. And it didn't bother him, at least not until one man in particular came around. We had discounts in the, all the shops in, in the hotel, we had, uh, in the coffee shop, we could eat for free. You know, we had a lot of liberty, and they were very nice to us, and never, they never, I never felt threatened at all, ever. Mm-hmm. Never felt threatened. Oh. Until Lefty Rosenthal. According to Charles, when the Argent Corporation bought the Stardust, and Lefty Rosenthal took up the role of entertainment director, the friendly relationships between the dancers and the mobsters ended. They weren't fooling around. These men meant business, you know, and dangerous business. All of a sudden, working as a dancer at the Stardust became a frightening job. According to Charles, Lefty was a fanatic when it came to monitoring the weight of the dancers at the Stardust. 
For example, every so often he would round up all the performers and weigh them on a meat scale. We actually had to be weighed in once a month. And you couldn't be five pounds more or five pounds less mm -hmm. than your weight. Well, sometimes I'd have to go home and, okay. you know, I was so scared of gaining any weight whatsoever. So who was doing the weighing? Was it the uh, they, they your would. show? Rosenthal, yeah. And, and the girls, the, the dancing nudes and everything, they got so thin, so thin, and they, their breasts were, were like shrinking. And the women in the audience that would laugh at them because they were so small. And the lead dancing girl, she had to do one number where she was just in a little tiny bikini. That was it. Mm -hmm. And the scene where she would fall on the floor and she was on her back. And I thought it was her breasts that were sticking up. And it was her shoulder blades. You so, could see so every rib you, in her back. Charles says Lefty would also show up just about every night and sit right in the middle of the audience in a high-priced section referred to as King's Row, just watching and taking photos. He would sit there almost every night with the, all these cameras that he had. And he had these cameras that had lenses on them, enormous, as big as my hand, mm -hmm. you know? And he'd be sitting there, because he had to hold them with both hands. Mm -hmm. They were so large and so heavy. And I keep saying, what is he taking pictures of? So what was he taking pictures of? I don't know. I never saw the, uh, the films. Although he can't say for sure what Lefty was taking photos of, Charles is pretty sure that it wasn't the dancers' smiles. How did the other dancers feel about Rosendahl? And the Terrified. Team? The girls were scared to death. I mean, they were really afraid because, well, they didn't want to lose their jobs, and he was so strict with them, okay. you know? And, and it, it, was, it was scary. It was just really scary. Okay. While Lefty Rosenthal continued to serve as an entertainment director on paper, his off-the-books role with Argent was to keep an eye on the mob's skimming operations. In a column published in the Review Journal, Jane Ann Morrison would write, He had various titles from food and beverage director to entertainment director, but it was no secret he was concerned with more than how many blueberries were in a blueberry muffin and how tall the showgirls were. Here's Jane Ann herself. He was basically uh, making sure that the skim got to where it was going, that it was getting back to Chicago, that it was getting back to Kansas City. Uh, his, his job was, uh, you know, he probably had something to do with showgirls. <laughs> he had a little fondness for showgirls. That's the rumor. But basically, he was overseeing the skim. That was his main job because Lefty was continually challenging Nevada's gaming laws. There were windows of time when he was barred from working out of the Argent casinos. So he found ways to work from home. Later on, when I uh, had an opportunity to review, uh, to, to see Frank Rosenthal's house that was for sale at the Las Vegas Country Club, it contained all of this um, electronic equipment where he was actually staying at home when he actually couldn't report to the property and was still involved in the business operations of the hotel electronically through direct wired cable television and, uh, and other, other video capabilities. This is the home in the Las Vegas Country Club I visited at the beginning of this episode. There's a good picture of uh, Lefty and his wife we found, and you can see it's in this kitchen. It's taken right here, actually. The, cap the cabinets are all different, clearly. 
but the fridge right here and the cabinets, so they were standing right here. That picture was taken. And to this day, you can still see the wiring from all the electronic equipment Lefty installed to keep an eye on the stardust. This looks the same thing, but that's just all through there. And then you can see all the tubes with the wiring going upstairs. The room above us is the room where um, he had all, basically his office and all the monitors with the TVs and stuff. After the break, Tony Spilatro makes a name for himself in Las Vegas. Before the break, you heard about the outfits guy inside the Stardust and other Argent Corporation casinos, Lefty Rosenthal. Well, while Lefty was keeping an eye on operations from the inside, Tony Spilatro was tasked with looking after the mob's interests on the outside and with keeping an eye on Lefty. Here's Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher. Lefty was not a uh, tough guy. He uh, was, uh, you know, a technician, if you will. So they needed to send a second person out to Las Vegas to uh, to take care of tough, rough stuff, and that was Tony Spilatro. Tony Spilatro uh, was, a, was a soldier in the Chicago outfit. He was a, a killer, frankly, and a street boss uh, in Chicago, and they sent him out to Las Vegas, I think because they had high hopes for him, and they thought he could eventually become a high-level person within the outfit. Lefty was the mob's numbers guy, and Tony was the muscle. He then came to Las Vegas, and he was kind of a sidekick with Rosenthal in making sure the Stardust ran smoothly. Ultimately, though, Spilatro kind of went out on his own. He freelanced, and he wanted to, everybody needed to make their own money because, you know, it's not like you get a salary from the mob. You, you have to find ways to make money. And he might have gotten a piece of the skim, but he, he wanted more. And so he brought a crew out to Las Vegas of guys he knew from Chicago, mostly, and got involved with uh, robberies, burglaries, extortion, loan sharking, um, and with a particular talent for burglary. Former organized crime strike force attorney Stan Hunterton. We were never able to indict Tony Spilatro for being part of the effort to skim money out of the casinos. He had his fingers in lots of other pies like loan sharking, burglary rings, stolen jewelry, that kind of thing. Just like Lefty, Tony struggled to keep a low profile. Las Vegas newspapers first connected him to the mob in 1972, when he was charged with the torture murder of a loan shark back in Chicago. After one of his co-defendants, someone who has been said to have been considering rolling over on Tony, was killed by a shotgun blast to the chest, Tony was acquitted in 1973. But despite the acquittal, from then on out, Tony would serve as a de facto face of the mob in Las Vegas. Again, here's former RJ reporter and columnist, Jane Ann Morrison. 
He was in bars. He was in restaurants. And one night, I took a bunch of the RJ people. Well, I didn't take them. We went, we, the bunch of the RJ people and I went over to a bar that he hung out at, the My Place, off of Maryland Parkway. And it was really interesting. We came in. He recognized me. He didn't recognize the others, but he recognized me, and he sent drinks over to all of us. And at that time, we all thought that was a big deal. We, it was like George Clooney had sent drinks to us. And later I thought to myself, why was I excited about that? You know, he's the killer. Uh, why did I... Why did I think that was a, a big deal? And of course, the, the other reporters were impressed that we got free drinks. They were always impressed that we got free drinks from anybody. That's what reporters are like. Quick fact check. Yes, that holds up. Review Journal reporter Jeff Gehrman also told me about an encounter he had with Tony Spilatro at a bar in Las Vegas when he was just starting out as a reporter. And at this time, I was starting to cover Spilatro again early in my career. So we, we go in, we sit in a booth, and we see Spilatro at the bar, and there's nobody else in the joint. It's just me, the other reporter, a couple waitresses, a bartender, and uh, Spilatro and, and the actor Robert Conrad, who, was, who became famous in those days for the, uh, in the lead role in the television uh, series uh, Wild Wild West. Spilatro was known to, you know, from time to time hang out with, with celebrities, and, and he was one of them at the time. And so we, uh, we saw him, and we said, hey, should we, you know, what should we do? And when the waitress came over, we had this idea to, hey, send over drinks to those guys, to Spilat Mr. Spilatro and, and his friend. And she goes over to, to Spilatro, starts talking to him, comes back and says, um, you don't buy Mr. Spilatro drinks. He buys you drinks. Back in Chicago, Tony might have been considered a lower-level member of the mafia. But in Las Vegas, he was an underworld king, and the whole city was his domain. An anonymous casino owner would tell the LA Times, in a series published in the Review Journal, quote, Everybody on the strip was scared to death of the little bastard. Tony strutted in and out of joints like Little Caesar. Spilatro was regarded as basically a soldier in the mob, which is a low-level position. He was a maid member, which was an accomplishment within the mob, but he was a soldier who had a big territory, the lucrative casino uh, skimming operations, and so he got so much more attention because of that. According to an LA Times study, more gangland murders took place in Nevada between 1971 and 1974, Spilatro's first four years in the state than during the previous 25 years combined. Rightfully or not, members of law enforcement made the connection between the uptick in mafia-style executions and Tony's arrival in Nevada. Federal investigators believed that Tony Spilatro was responsible for more than two dozen murders. This is Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher who also pointed out that Tony was never actually convicted in a homicide case. Some people mistakenly attach any suspicious murder in the 70s in Las Vegas to Tony Spilatro. He didn't do everything. He didn't kill everybody. In one case, in March of 1974, Tony was arrested on suspicion of murder, but released the next morning because the detectives who booked him were unable to tell a judge whom he was supposed to have killed. But... It's reasonable to assume uh, through the evidence 
that has come subsequent to his death that he was definitely involved in rough stuff for the Chicago mob and up to and including murder. And, uh, you know, famously, you know, he was uh, wanting to get information out of an individual who had uh, given the outfit trouble and he put the guy's head in a vice and squeezed the vice until the guy's eye popped out. There's testimony to that effect that that happened. I believe it did happen. One former Las Vegas police lieutenant would tell the LA Times, Every time there was a hit, we'd rush to Splotra's house. Little Tony would always be sitting there waiting for us, polite as you please. Hi fellas, come on in, he'd say. Have a seat, can I get you something? Should I call my lawyer? Tony's lawyer was a young, sharp defense attorney named Oscar Goodman. Here's Oscar talking about Tony Spilatro at a 2015 event held at the Ma Museum. We were in the system so many times, and he was arrested so many times, that it got to a point where I picked up the phone and called a judge and I said, they arrested Tony again. We released him on his own recognizance, and the judge said, in this one particular instance, what's he arrested for? I said, well, he's arrested for murder. And uh, the judge says, who? And uh, I said, nobody knows. Nobody will tell me who was killed. And he let him out on his own recognizance. And, 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 and then we had a hearing uh, on a Sunday uh, as, in, in state court, and, and the same thing took place. Uh, the district attorney said, what am I here for? They didn't have a victim. I mean, uh, uh, that's what was happening in those days. Oscar's response to those who refer to Tony as a killer is pretty much the same today as it was in the 1970s. If he committed 26 murders and never spent a day in jail, shame on the people who were supposed to solve these murders. As he's saying this, Oscar is sitting on a panel with a couple former FBI agents. Deborah Richard, an agent who was part of the team surveilling Tony Spilatro in the 1970s, responds, Don't you think when somebody has been charged with 26 murders, that maybe there's some substance to it? Mark Casper, Spilatro's case agent with the FBI, also chimes in. Probably because the reason Tony Spilatro was not ever, ever really convicted or any, he, he got rid of all the evidence, which means he eliminated the other people that could, that could implicate him. Well, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a pretty strong uh, accusation. Uh, he wasn't charged with those. Uh, if he was, I agree. If he was I charged agree. with them, then bring him to trial. Let me defend him. Now, if you've spent some time in Las Vegas, you probably know this voice pretty well. Oscar Goodman would later serve three terms as the mayor of Las Vegas, and he's now married to the city's current mayor, Carolyn Goodman. If you ask me, it's one of the more incredible stories in a city full of incredible stories. He was the best defender of the bad guys in America. This is former Nevada Senator Harry Reid, who's known Oscar for most of his career. We were peers. We started practicing law about the same time. He worked originally for Morton Ghislaine, who was a, really a good lawyer. A little eccentric, but a terrific lawyer. And Oscar's probably told people this uh, publicly, but I, he told me that how he got involved with the so-called bad guys. When he first came to Las Vegas, his wife was still in Philadelphia. And so every night he would go home and stop, I believe, I'm almost certain it was the Hacienda, and play cards, you know, 21 or something. That's what he played. And so he got to know people there. And... Uh, he didn't play large sums of money, quite the opposite. And one time, one of the pit bosses came to him and said, we have somebody who's got a little criminal problem. 
can you help me? I said, oh, sure, sure. He had never had a criminal case before. But that's how he got started representing these bad guys. Over time, Oscar Goodman's list of clients would include a number of high-profile reputed mobsters, including Meyer Lansky, Lefty Rosenthal, and, of course, Tony Spilatro. Oscar was always very upfront with who he was. He criticized the federal government for how they prosecuted cases, and he uh, truly believed that they were being unfair to his clients who were bad guys. So he didn't hide anything. He wasn't. He was a very honorable, ethical lawyer. Oscar would become known as a mouthpiece for the mob. But the way he saw his work, as he told the Review Journal in the 80s, is that he wasn't defending mobsters. He was simply defending people accused of crimes, who had as much right to a fair trial as anyone else in this country. In his words, quote, Should a doctor turn away a leper because he doesn't like the smell of the disease? I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea uh, that there was uh, a mob. RJ reporter Jeff Gehrman. One of the things that Spilatro, that uh, Goodman would often say when reporters pressed him about Spilatro's mob, you know, organized crime activities, he says, there is no, there is no mafia in Las Vegas. He would always say that. There is no mafia. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no mafia. I'd rather have this guy Spilatro in the presence of my wife and other women in my life than, than an FBI agent. That was one of his famous quotes. So he's constantly denying that there was organized crime and Spilatro was part of it. As the 1970s went on, attention from the media and law enforcement was making life more and more difficult for Tony. During his first few years in Vegas, Tony had been using casino gift shops as a front for some of his less reputable dealings. By the mid-1970s, that was no longer an option. So Spilatro became too hot to be in a casino. He moved over to a a jewelry store called the Gold Rush on Sahara Avenue, just right off the Strip. And it was right next door to the the famous Golden Steer Steakhouse, which still exists today. And from there, he ran his, uh, his fencing operation of stolen jewelry and all the other things that he would be doing. According to an LA Times series published in the Review Journal in the 1980s, Tony's new base, the Gold Rush, included a buzzer-operated front door, sophisticated police radio scanners, guns kept under the front counter, and spotters with binoculars keeping lookout from the second floor. From an upstairs office in the Gold Rush, Tony was allegedly running a growing criminal organization of illegal bookmakers, loan sharks, hitmen, and burglars. The network even included a couple members of law enforcement who had been corrupted. Former Review Journal writer Phil Lavelle would write that around this time, Tony, quote, extended his underworld authority to Southern California, where his troops became active in murder-for-hire, bookmaking, extortion, loan-sharking, and other crimes." End quote. Lavelle also notes that Spilatra was at the height of his power in 1977, but law enforcement was determined to take that power away, and they were turning up the heat. Former organized crime strike force attorney, Stan Hunterton. He had a lot of company in terms of being followed around, wiretaps, that kind of thing. The wiretaps are hard to follow. These guys speak in code, some of them use Italian slang, and most of the tapes sound like they were recorded on a potato. Here's an example from a call picked up between Tony Spilatro and Carl Tuffy DeLuna 
a reputed underboss of the mob in Kansas City. The two were apparently talking about a possible sale of the Stardust Hotel. DeLuna states, I truly think it would be detrimental. And Spilatro replies, I sure do. I understand that very well. DeLuna, if I could be with you in person, I could go into it a little better with you. They're reasoning. Spilatro. No, I, I'm all for that. I agree. I, I hate, I hate that shit. I ain't a scam guy. No, I, I'm all for that. I agree. I hate scam options. I hate that shit. I ain't a scam guy. I remember one of my favorite uh, lines uh, from all the many hundreds of hours of wiretaps that uh, I listened to. Spilatro was on the phone with one of his hoodlum friends, and the guy was complaining that he thought the FBI was following him and parking outside his house at night and the usual sort of gangster complaint about law enforcement. And Tony said in solace to this guy, it's the G standing for government. It's the G. They never sleep. Stan Hunterton also told me about one of his first face-to-face encounters with Tony Spilatro in the federal courts building in Las Vegas. Stan was walking into the grand jury room, and in his words, Tony thought it would be funny to stand in front of the entrance blocking his way. I explained to him quite nicely that uh, he ought to move, although even on a podcast, I don't think I can use the exact language, but uh, the point was not that uh, I'm so brave or tough. The point was, back in those days, we would sometimes look each other in the eye, and it's true, uh, Spilatro had shark eyes. Just... uh, If you've watched any of those nature films when the shark comes in towards the bait or whatever it's going to eat, that blank, dead look. And those were Tony's eyes. On part six of Mobbed Up, we sit down with a gaming official who battled the mob before going on to become one of Nevada's most well-known politicians. So I said, is this the money? And these guys had locked the door behind them when they came in. So I could hear the FBI trying to get in, but I was in there with those guys. This has been part five of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you don't want to miss our next episode, and why would you, make sure you're subscribed to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. Help us out if you have a second by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on social media. Mobbed Up is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. If you have any tips, feedback, questions, or a mob story of your own, find me on Twitter at Red Redmond or send an email to rredmond at reviewjournal.com. Our sound designer and engineer for this series is Jonathan McMichael. 
who also composed our theme song. Thanks to Jeff Morgan for showing me around Lefty Rosenthal's former home. Thanks also to everyone who shared their expertise, experience, and insight with me for this episode. Jeff Silver, Michael Green, Bill Ousley, Jeff Gehrman, Jane Ann Morrison, Stan Hunterton, Senator Harry Reid, Gary Jenkins, who hosts a podcast about the mob called Gangland Wire, and Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum. Some of the audio used in our intro, as well as clips noted throughout the episode, comes from the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library, Special Collections, and Archives. Music and sound effects are from Stephen Arnold Music and Motion Array. You can learn more about the Mob Museum by visiting themobmuseum.org. And you can learn more about Mobbed Up by visiting reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, we'll see you right back here next week.